This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hi, everyone. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And we are uh, going to discuss value-based pricing today. My question, basically, I've, I have a, a new client, and the client is a nonprofit. And they're a, a large, uh, or large-ish, like a couple dozen employees. And they have a large budget based on donations. And I'm going to be talking to them over the next few days, the next few weeks, first to do a road mapping project, and then to talk to them about the new project. And without revealing too many details, I mean, I started talking to Jonathan and Philip a little bit before we recorded now about this. And I'm really curious to know how I can use a value-based pricing approach when it's not obvious what the, I mean, I can't talk to them about their, their, what they expect to make, right? How much profit will you get from doing this website? Zero. If you don't do the website, it'll still be zero. So I'm sort of struggling with how to put together the questioning and how to put together a proposal, even though I know that they have money and that if I come up with a a decent sized budget, they will actually bite. So that's sort of the, the dilemma. So I guess, you know, Jonathan, being our resident uh, person who has slightly strong opinions on value-based pricing. So where do I even start with this? Okay, so it's kind of simple in a way because you always start at the same place, which is figure out like why they're doing the project. It's kind of hard to do that in a... It's not complex, like that's what you need to figure out, but how to figure it out is the tricky part. The thing you need to do is say to them, it, it might be too late for this, I don't know, but what you... In general, what you want to do is say to them, why do you guys want to do this? You know, a website is almost always a major undertaking, could easily be six figures, probably will be. And I looked at your website, maybe it's not the shiniest website on the internet, but it works. And I don't don't really see what the problem is. It's not obvious what the problem is. Like, why would you even want to do this? Like, why engage in this project, spend all this money and devote your team? You know, it's going to be a long-term collaboration with the team members and and my team or me. And can you make a business case to me? Like, how you're going to get some ROI on this? Because I don't want to take your money if it's not going to be beneficial to you in some way. And I usually refer to this as like talking them out of working with me. Right. And if you can talk them out of it, then you did them a huge favor and they will never forget it and probably come back to you or potentially come back to you in the future at some point. But in my experience, you almost never can successfully talk them out of it. They will always have some kind of 
they'll have some reason. You know, they'll say, oh, well, the current site is very difficult to maintain and it's constantly going down or we're constantly losing data. You know, people will enter all these posts and then they don't save because the database is unresponsive. They'll come up with a bunch of reasons. Or they'll say, the, the other thing that sometimes happens is it'll turn out you're talking to the wrong person and they'll say, I don't know, my boss just wants it changed. And, right. you, and you have to say, well, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not interested in that unless I can talk to the boss because I don't know that. Cause I, you know, I, I will usually actually say, you know, you don't want to spend a million dollars with me to maybe have some beneficial outcome. You know, it's, it's, this is going to be expensive and I don't want to enter into a relationship where at the end you're going to regret having hired me. So I need to talk to somebody who can convince me that there's a reasonable expectation that this is going to be a beneficial outcome for you. So could you get your boss on the phone? But that doesn't happen all that often, but to me, but it happens to a lot of people. So I thought I'd mention that. Right. I mean, so I have a meeting actually it happens to be tomorrow, but I have a meeting with, I don't know if it'll be the CEO, but certainly a few of the, the like the big wigs who are basically making the decision or have been tasked with making the decision and getting the CEOs sign off on it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like usually, so, so I mean, in talking to them, basically their big thing, their big motivation, they're sort of an educational site for lack of a better term. And mm-hmm. their interest is sort of spreading the message as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. So like the more people, you know, it's, it's like Silicon Valley 15 years ago, right? We don't care how much we make. We just want to get as many users as possible, as many enthusiastic users as possible, coming back to the site all the time, watching our things, participating in our forums and so on and so forth. And the mm-hmm. more we do that, the better. And so their motivation mm-hmm. is sort of spreading the message. And the motivation for changing their website is, it's funny. I think that it actually has to do with the design, which does not necessarily mean they have to change the whole application. Right. Uh, but it could be that they've decided that finding people, the old site is Drupal based. And it could be that for whatever reasons they've decided, well, finding someone to do Drupal is really hard. But of course, finding someone to maintain a custom web application is even harder. Uh, <laughs> right. Cause there are many people who can maintain Drupal and there's literally one group of people who can maintain custom software, which is the people who are working on it. Right. And you have to, the thing that's important here is that you have to talk numbers because it matters. So if you were saying to them, look, let's get down to the root of what the real problem is, because migrating off of one platform to another or to rolling your own feels like it, you know, for whatever reason that seems attractive in the moment right now, because you're frustrated and you feel like you've been held hostage by your previous team. And this is your whole, not business, but this is your whole organization is this website. Without this website, there is no organization, really. There's no way to achieve your mission. So it could be that it will cost a half a million dollars to do this thing that you're asking for. And if you imagine that you've got a half a million dollars to throw around to solve this problem, there might be a much easier way to to use that money or quite a bit less money and get it done very quickly by just hiring a full-time Drupal developer, which would be a fraction of that and would immediately get you through the frustration that you're currently feeling. So if really, if, if the whole problem is that you're just feeling held hostage by your dev team or whatever, just hire someone. And then they'll say, no, it's not that. Or they might say, yes, great idea. We didn't, why didn't we think of that? And then you can say, thank you, see you later, bye. Right. Or, or they'll be like, no, that won't work because of reasons. And you'll say, okay. And then try and come up with another solution and say, well, you could do some other thing. I don't know. You could just upgrade it or you could just redo the design and leave it on the same platform. Just try and do at every turn, try and talk them out of doing anything, never mind hiring you. Like, there's got to be an easier way to solve this. 
rolling your own, you know, you need to, I wouldn't say this explicitly, but basically you need to make them convince you that their self-diagnosis or the, the prescription that they're giving to themselves is actually the most efficient or the most sensible approach. And a, a full from scratch rebuild is almost never the right approach. Occasionally it is, but almost never. Right. It's, I mean, cause, cause they started telling me, well, we have so much functionality. I mean, it's so much functionality. Literally, they can't even tell me what it does. I'm going to go through the website a bit more today. And I think just spending time listing all the functionality they want from the old site will take easily an hour or two, which, so we will not do that. But they don't even know everything that it does because it's so deep and it's so complicated. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. And then they want to redo this whole thing and they don't even know what it does. This is a recipe for an infinitely long project, which is. Yeah. Maybe it's a good rule, a big good thing to pay by the hour, right? Uh, <laughs> because, because infinitely like time, infinite uh, amounts, uh, amounts of time times an hourly rate is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of ways I would tackle that. I would strongly urge them not to do this. If there's that much, it's kind of hard to believe that there's that much functionality in the site, but okay, let's say there is. If no one exists that knows what all functionality it is, it would be completely bonkers to rewrite that. You cannot present a website to somebody as a scope document. It doesn't work like that. You, it, it just doesn't, you know, because there could be stuff. This has actually happened to me where somebody says, we want it to work just like this, but instead of FileMaker, we want to use MySQL. Oh, that drives me nuts. Cause it, right. and, and I would be like, okay, it's not like I can just port this over. We need to build it from scratch. How will I know? that this report is running correctly in the old, in the new system. And they're like, well, it would need to match the one in the old system. And I go, okay, how do you know that it's running correctly in the old system? And they'll be like, we don't know if it's running correctly in the old system, <laughs> but they never thought of that. They just assume that the old system works. And it has happened to me when I've rebuilt a, a function note for note, identical to a previous one. And they'll look at the results and they'll say, this, these numbers are wrong. And I'm like, this is outputting the exact same numbers as the existing solution. And then they look back at the existing one and they're like, oh man, you're right. We've been getting the wrong numbers from this the oh whole time. Goodness. Oh my Like that has happened to me. So you cannot, you cannot, cannot, cannot agree to that if you're going to give them a fixed bid. And if you're not going to give them a fixed bid, I wouldn't take the project, but that's me. Because you'll end up in the situation that the that they're in where they're basically, you know, running around with their pants down because they don't want to spend the time to bend over and pull them up. So let's just run faster with our pants down. Like everybody needs to take a step back. And so the roadmapping is a great idea. Take a step back, say, okay, what are the actual goals here? And there can't be 10 goals. There's, pro there's probably only one, maybe two goals, right? Like desired outcomes of this. And those things are going to have a value associated with them. It might not be a dollar value. It could be a... You know, it could be that we need to present ourselves. We need to present a picture of the organization uh, as a thriving community in order to get government funding or government grants or to attract the top tier talent that we want to attract. And that's really tough to correlate to a direct bottom line outcome or, you know, you're not going to say, oh, okay, we, you know, we redid the site. Now it's beautiful and responsive and the colors are gorgeous. And now, uh, you're going to make a million dollars more this year, or at least get a million more in donations. It doesn't track that way, but that's okay because the person in charge, it'll still be worth something to them. And right. it's a, it's a squishy subjective calculation that they get in their gut 
about whether or not a given price for the project is higher or lower than what it's worth to them. So if you said, if I'm at a, a baseball game and my kid is screaming because she's dying of thirst and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, how much is a bo- this bottle of water worth to you? I could come up with a number, but it's way easier to just, like, you can't stop your brain from reacting to somebody coming up to you and say, hey, you know, five bucks for this water. I'll immediately react to like, that's too high, it's too low, whether or not it's worth it to me. I'm not going to get a financial return on buying that $5 bottle of water, but it's worth $5 to me. See what I mean? So it's going to be the same thing with this project. So you do the road mapping thing. And real for me, the real purpose of the roadmap or the, the main thing that you would want to get out of it is having a really clear definition of what the desired outcomes are, some metrics that you can track to measure progress toward achieving that goal or those outcomes and from that you will be able to calculate a rough value you know for them just from the conversations that you've had it'll be more or less obvious at least within an order of magnitude and then you can say all right this is going to be $150,000 you don't have to worry about getting nickel and dimes with change orders that's just going to be the price I think it's going to take six months if it ends up taking 12 months you don't pay any extra and payments do 100% up front and I can get started next Monday. Right. So part of the reason why I'm doing this road mapping is, and I, I was thinking of spending, although I think you've really outlined it very well, what I need to do, the first part, just to like find out what their motivation is here and what they want to do. And like, and, and the second part is then I even said to them, this is such a big thing. And if you can't tell me what's going on, I suggest that we do road mapping with the expected effect of having a site at the end of this project that does less than your current one does now. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, and they said, Oh, but I said, okay. Why don't you give me a list of the 10 features that are most used on the site? Because it can't be all of them are used. Some of them are more important, some of them are less important. Can you get that to me? And they're like, oh, we don't know. <laughs> no one's ever asked us that before. So I feel like they're already starting to realize that maybe not everything is 100% crucial. And if we get like the stuff that people are using 80% of the time, even if that's only a third of the functionality, that might be good enough to go live with a new thing and then becomes a smaller things easier to scope easier to estimate easier to pay for and then mm-hmm. we can run from there so i'm hoping to come out with some sort of sort of smaller scope description but also having right. these metrics is super important because i said to them so how often were you meeting with the like the previous developers the previous developers who like basically flushed a lot of money down the toilet and mm-hmm. they said oh yeah we were supposed to meet with them and never did um, ever i think like once every few months like once every month or so um, maybe. And then they said, but we were expl- we were exchanging lots of email about like, what do people want to do? It's not, I don't think there was ever any sort of organized, we should talk about what the goals are for the next week or two. And I said, did you ever do that? They said, yeah, they talked to us about sprints and they gave us a lot of these tasks written up as, as the user, I should be able to log in. I was like, oh my God, you're in agile hell. You have basically a thousand of these tiny little tasks and there's no sense of the like overall picture yeah the big picture exactly <laughs> and, and they were like oh we're supposed to do something with these things uh, wow so i think that i think that agile is fine i think it's a, a fine organizing principle for the dev team to use to achieve the goal i don't think the client should be exposed to agile in most cases it's a tool that the team uses to most quickly get to the outcome I'm okay with exposing it to them to some degree, like to say, okay, this coming week we're planning to do X and Y and Z, and we think we can get all that done, and are those the right priorities for this coming week or the coming two weeks? 
And yeah, if they say, I, no, we want to work on other priorities, then that's fine. But that's, like, that, that's way too tactical for the client to be involved with. Because mm-hmm. that what you're doing is you're inviting them to critique the way that you want to run the project. Interesting. So if the goal is, a, it's going to be a high-level thing. The, the problem with getting them involved at that level is that they've got a hand on the wheel. You don't want the hand on the wheel. You want them to be like, look, we're trying to go to the Grand Canyon. You figure it out. You don't want them to be like, oh, no, get off here and just yanking the wheel. Because that's what that's what happens if you've got the client involved with sprints. You shouldn't be they should not be focusing on features at all. So so that means that, that up front, you need to have a really clear specification of what's expected. The goals, not not things like user login and uh, forums and that stuff will come out in conversation and you can include it. So that everybody knows that you heard the conversation and you know that needs to be there. But in an extreme example, I would say something like, look, here are the goals. You want to attract top tier volunteers, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And those volunteers are not going to want to be associated with you if your site looks like crap or whatever. You know, and so what we're going to do is we're going to go out and interview you, you can tell us who are some amazing people that you would love to have on your team. And we'll go interview them and we'll say, like, what do you think about this existing site? What is your reaction to this? Would you ever consider working at a place that had a website like this? What companies have you worked at? Let me see what those websites look like. And like, and then you get a reasonable picture of what it would, what the site would need to look like to attract top tier talent and probably other things besides what the site is, the message, the content, all of that stuff. And then you go back to them, you say, okay, we've got a pretty good picture of this. Or maybe they collaborate with you on that. That's fine too. But you got to keep it super, super high level. And in a really extreme standpoint, you wouldn't let them tell you how to build stuff. You wouldn't let them say it needs a user login. You'd be like, no, it doesn't. That's not going to help achieve our goals. But at the same time, like, I'm not quite sure how to bridge that gap between, because I, I actually like having the clients talking to me about what they want to do. Um, I like having these regular meetings, even if it's like once every week or two, saying, okay, we've finished X and Y and Z. And it's not going to be down to the, we have the, you know, if you log in and you get it wrong, this is what it'll say. But when we roll it out, I do want to get their feedback and then know, is it a priority to fix it or change it versus moving forward with new stuff, as opposed to, say, just presenting them with a fait accompli. So I feel like yeah. there's this gap between high-level strategy, which I definitely want to have a discussion with them about, like not just sort of task by task within the Agile world, but also letting them give me feedback because otherwise I feel like I'll just run in the wrong direction unless they critique it. Well, in the absence of goals, yeah. But if there are goals, then you probably won't run in the wrong direction. You might need to get input from them. And I absolutely think that you could be having at least weekly meetings with them. I'd just be super careful about them driving the car. You know, if they say something that is in your mind going to be counterproductive or, uh, orthogonal to the goals being achieved and is going to add work to your plate or your team's plate, then I would make them convince me, you know, how is this flashy, yeah, I don't know, uh, scroll jacking on the homepage with parallax images? How is this going to achieve the stated goals? And And you want to have that kind of communication. And if they can come up with a good reason, then you better do it. But if they can't come up with a good reason, then you have to retain veto power to say, we are not in agreement that this is going to achieve the end goal. So let's just keep it on the list. Maybe we'll come back to it for version two. Or if the stuff that we all can agree on does achieve the goal or doesn't achieve the goals, then we can try this, but, or we could AB test it. 
But for now, it's clearly not an obvious win. So let's stick with the low-hanging fruit and get something released. I'm all for that. Lots of client communication. You know, make sure they still want to go to the Grand Canyon. And if you to like help keep the car on track, fine. But you just have to you have to maintain control of the, all of the tactical stuff because that's where scope creep comes from. Right. That's true. At the same time, like I can't imagine showing like our latest again. Let's take a banal example here, like login screen. And they're like, you know, this login screen is great, but you need to change green to pink and you need to use the sans serif font, right? So that, in my experience, is a very normal, expected thing for the client to say. And something they'll say, okay, fine. And if I'm charging hourly, what the hell? And you're saying, basically, I need to say to them, wait, that doesn't help you achieve your goals. Trust me on the design for now. And we'll put that on the list for after we finish this project and talk about how to get all that stuff in order. You're saying, basically, push them off. Specifically about design, I usually get some kind of strong direction on that from them somehow so that we don't have to have a million little tactical conversations about it. So I'll say something like, do you like the branding on the current site? Do you like the color scheme on the current site? Is any of that, do you want to change any of that? And I sort of short circuit all of those conversations because those are kind of things that just take a meeting sideways because people will just debate, oh, well, Facebook does it like this and <laughs> it ends up, ends up being this complete time suck. And sure. yeah, so what I would do, if you think that it's going to be highly sensitive, you know, if you think that they want it to be incredibly high-end like a Nike.com or something, then I would engage a designer early in the project, perhaps during the roadmapping or immediately after the roadmap and be like, okay, we need to come up with an agreed upon design or at least something that gives us a clear picture of the main pages, a style guide of some sort. And I just did exactly this with a, a project where there's a desktop website that is not responsive in the least. It's virtually unusable on mobile phones. And he said, we want the desktop site to stay exactly like it is. We've A-B tested it within an inch of its life. We just want it to work on mobile. So I said, okay, so from a branding standpoint, you want to stick with the same colors, the same font, all that stuff is basically fine. They're like, yeah. Like, okay, so my overall guidance on the design is to make it look like it fits with the desktop site. And that that really answers all of those questions, and it doesn't take long. And if they start getting into uh, those sorts of questions in the middle somewhere, I would say something along the lines of, you know, let's not get too tactical with arbitrary design changes. If you really think it's that big a deal, I'll keep track of this. And then we can A, B test all of this stuff later. So it's not just the, you know, the highest paid person in the room making the decision. Wow. I just, I, I mean, I think of all the things you said, this is the most mind blowing for me. Cause like, <laughs> no, no. Cause like really the notion of me saying to a client, Oh, you want to change how the site looks more or less tough luck. Wait, like trust me and wait. I think in my whole consulting career, I've never even imagined saying that to someone. Yeah, you have to you have to stop letting them. It's really a mind sh- mind shift, mindset change, where you just can't let them boss you around. And if you do let them boss you around, then you're labor. They're telling you what to do. And if you're being hired as an expert, this is an important point. If you're being hired as an expert, you need to exert some pushback. You're going to have to. You know, if you're the doctor in this situation, the patient's not going to tell you how to do their triple bypass. The difference probably being that a patient in a scenario like that doesn't want to tell you how, and a client does <laughs> want to tell you how to do your job. But it has everything to do with the initial contact and the early conversations where you build up kind of a trust bank, like you build up a bank of trust with them, 
like, wow, this person really, really has our best interests at heart. We believe that he's not just saying this, you know, to get done quicker. He's saying this because we all have agreed to these goals. He's made a compelling case why tweaking the shade of blue in the middle of the project is a waste of everybody's time and a distraction and is going to have a negative impact on our ability to ever finish. And you almost protect them from, I, I present it and I genuinely believe this, that I'm protecting them from themselves because software projects can go haywire so easily and they get bogged down with people focusing on the wrong things and wasting everybody's time on the wrong things. Let's not waste time on those things. I know everybody's got an opinion and, you know, your spouse hates the color scheme and these are not good reasons for changing it. In fact, I would argue that the people in the organization, their opinion doesn't matter in the least the opinion that matters the most is the people that are trying to attract with the site. And if I was going to take input from anybody, it would be those people. Unless the stated goal is to make the CEO happy with the way it looks. Like if that's the stated goal, then fine. I'm going to have the CEO in every single design meeting, but that's never the goal, but that's how everyone acts. Right. Wow. I'm still sort of reeling from this. I mean, I just, as an example, I guess not from the website, because you, you give the example of medicine, maybe to bring it a little closer to what we do in terms of web stuff. So we just built like, I don't know, it's called a pergola, like one of these sort of shade things, like a, a not a deck, but wood above you to shield you from the sun outside mm-hmm. of our house. So we just replaced the one that we had in our house here. And we had these, these guys come over and they gave us a fixed price bid and they said, we're going to do it in two days. And they did. They did a really, really amazing job. If anyone needs to buy a pergola in Israel, I can tell you some great guys to talk to. In any event, like, so they came and they said, okay, this is our design. And my wife said, that's ridiculous. Like you want to have three legs on the thing holding it up and that will block our view of our backyard and we want to see it. I want two legs. So they said, okay. And they went back and sort of redrew it out. So it would be two legs. Then she said, we went one leg. They were like, okay, something needs to hold it up. So, <laughs> right? so there was some pushback there, but basically that sort of give and take struck me as very reasonable and the sort of thing that I would want to have with a client. But you're saying that's very high level in terms of goals. That's not once they agreed on the two legs uh, and the color of the wood, um, then they just went to it and we literally did not touch them, disturb them, ask them until they were done. Right. And so the interaction with your wife's suggestions, I think is valid because she is the end user. Ah, so she, ha- okay. she happens, she also happens to be the client, but she is also the end user. So she's both people in that case. Like we just had a stone wall built on the side of our house, uh, or rebuilt. We had a stone wall that was falling over and we had it rebuilt and the guy asked me a couple of questions, you know, he said, do you want it? You know, you know, your, your yard slopes here, the old wall doesn't account for that. Do you want the new wall to account for that? Or do you want it exactly the old way? You know, basically he's asking me cosmetically, how do I want it to look? And it, but it was just one, it was a very big high level decision. When you consider the hundreds of thousands of tiny little micro decisions he made about which rock to pick up off the ground and how to chip it with the hammer to fit it into a spot. If he was asking me about every, you know, how should I chip this one or that one? Do you want that one right there? Or do you want me to flip it over and put it over there? I would have choked the guy. If you, you know, like, why did I hire you, you know, just to move the rocks? So you want your provider to make as much of the, the, all of those little decisions. You don't really care about those things really. The problem with designers and web developers, in my experience, web designers and web developers, is that we ask for those opinions. So, of course, they give them, right. but they don't really want to. Like, if you ask my opinion about something, I'm going to come up with it. It doesn't, it doesn't, no one asks, well, 
they usually don't say, well, how strongly do you feel about this? And then the person says, well, I don't really care, but you asked for my opinion. And if I had to pick, I'm going to pick A over B, but I don't really care. And with design, it's, it's rampant because it's just so visible. And with something like, you know, how do you want your GitHub repo organized? The client doesn't care. Right. Well, that, so that's obvious, but it's interesting because I, I, I mean, I guess you're right. How many times have I gone to a client and said, look where we've gotten so far. What do you think? <laughs> right. And yeah. what do you think is basically an invitation to say, well, you know, there's a little too much white space on the right there. And but I'm not a designer by in any way, shape or form. Right. Mm. So they'll say that I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah but I, neither I are they. Right. <laughs> neither are they. Right. Right. But I'm sort of assuming that as the clients, they get the final say. And I, I, it's fascinating for me to hear you say no, like push back on them and say, first of all, I, I mean, I think your points are totally valid. Right. Like I think I, and I think the most important one that you've made is they are not the clients. Right. So they, they can't and should be making decisions. So better yet, better is to either A, B test it or to like talk to some people. Right. What do you think? Or, or even better than that, like watch them do some, not necessarily A, B testing, but give the user a task, a hallway testing sort of thing. Give them a task, see how they react. And, and based on that, we can make changes. Right. That would be a, that would be a great progress metric. So assuming that you are, you've got some kind of staging server, you've got some way to demo the site in progress to, have a, a group of, you know, a known group of people who are likely candidates to be users of a site like this. And one of the progress metrics would be to run it by them and say, you know, what do you think of this? You know, it's okay to measure things in subjective terms if you know that you're measuring something subjective. So it, it's just as long as everybody agrees that that's the measure and like, okay, which subjects? You know, it doesn't make any sense to have the CEO or really anyone internal test it because they all know how it works or how it should work. And they have the mental model of, they're the worst people to test it. I had a client years ago with whom I got along fantastically. I loved working with him. But it was obvious to me that people were not using the site. This was a, like a book e-commerce site. People were just not using it. And I would say to him, have we tried it with any users? He'd be like, oh, no, no. But I know it's really easy to use. I was like, okay, it's easy for you to use because we built the thing from scratch together. So clearly you know how it works. And so I sort of forced him into it, or I, I did it, and then gave him the results. And I said, I just tried it with some people, and they were completely unable to use the site. He was like, oh, that's surprising. Right. And if the, if the stated goal was made explicit at the beginning, which is, you know, implicitly, obviously, he wants users to use the site. But if the stated goal is, I want this many users by this date, that's the desired outcome, I want this to turn into a business... Then what you can do is you can always it's it's I see it as my job in this situation to keep pulling the business owner out of the tactical, keep pulling them back to the business goals. And you have to do it constantly. They, it will happen for the entire project. You'll be like, OK, Bob, but listen, remember the goals. The goal is not to please you and make you want to print it out and hang it on your wall. The goal is to get you to 10,000 a month in recurring revenue. And the types of people that we're targeting are these types of people. And they hate it. You love it. They hate it. So, you know, you tell me, should we listen to them or should we listen to you? And I just always pulling them back to that. You know, you say this and I, I can hear so clearly you saying this to these large companies dealing with mobile sites, right? Because right. like they, they're trying to make money from their e-commerce sites and mobile and everything. And you're looking at thousands, hundreds of thousands of users, and you know what people are looking at. And meanwhile, they're saying, no, 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 like, it's too ugly, no one will use it. Or it's fantastic, we should go with it. And you have been mm. in the proof otherwise. Right. Yeah. 
and you, they'll say, oh, well, we, on the sign-up form, we need to have uh, full, complete physical, uh, like 10 fields to get their complete physical address, their job title, their organization <laughs> name, all of this stuff. I'm like, all you need is their email. Why do you need all this other stuff? Well, we, we want to market to them. We want to send them direct mail. I'm like, well, okay. But the stated goal is that we want sign-ups to drastically increase. And you could do that without me. Just take all these f fields off this form and make the page responsive. And we're done here. You'll double your signups because there's too many, you know, on mobile, there's just too many fields here. No one's going to do this. And like, yeah, we have a really bad bounce rate there, but we really need those fields. Marketing says we need them. <laughs> like you can still ask for those, but ask for them after signup at a point where it makes sense. Like, oh, I don't know when you're going to ship something to them. And then, you know, oh, huh, that's interesting. You know, but if without those stated goals, you're dead in the water. You just get pushed around because there's no litmus test for whether or not something's a good idea. It all goes back to whoever the highest ranking person in the room is and whether or not you can persuade them. And that's just a huge waste of time. So you've said many times in the past that you don't give a long proposal, right? Proposals for you are tiny and in many mm -hmm. cases sort of regurgitated what they've told you at these sorts of meetings. So right. I assume then that includes these high-level goals and that becomes almost like the for lack of a better term, contract or constitution for the project that you then keep pushing, the, for, forcing them to look at it and saying, look, I'm doing what you've asked for. I guess at some point you can say, like, do you want to change the goals? Yes, but the goals never change. It's right. never, so never going to change, change. But this, I assume, forces them to say, oh, well, actually, like, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, the, the thing that I, I have had to do on one or two occasions in, I don't know, 10 years, I have had to say, you know, somebody comes along and they, they genuinely have something that is clearly out of scope, but they're like, nothing matters about the initial project more than this thing that we just thought of. And maybe it's in response to a, a competitor releasing something or whatever. And I'll say, okay, but we can't run both of these projects concurrently. So what we can do is pause this current project. I'll quickly put together our proposal for this other thing, this more or less unrelated thing. And we can do that. And then we can come back to this. Oh, well, we, we can't stop this project. But meanwhile, they just said this new thing's more important than the current project. Well, which is it? But forced to choose between the two because they, they can recognize that they don't have the bandwidth to do two projects at once. They, they At this point in the project, they'll already realize they can barely handle one on top of their regular job. And they'll be like, okay, I mean, if we have to pick between the two, then yeah, we can put this on hold. It, not the, you know, put this new idea, we'll save that for later, but we need to finish what we're in the middle of. And we're like, okay, great. You know, but I see it as my job to just constantly, constantly be pulling them back to the original goals and prevent everybody, including me, from wasting a bunch of time with silly, arbitrary design changes that get, I mean, I've been on projects where they get changed so much, people can't even remember what was decided right. because they've been changed so many times. Right, and design, I mean, I've seen, I've seen design can just, these sorts of tiny little nitpicking things not only can consume meetings, they can just consume weeks and months of time, and then people wonder where all the time went. In fact, it's right. possible that that happened with these other developers. I mean, I think it's, I still think these other people are, like, completely irresponsible and or thieves. That said, like, it's quite possible that they would say, well, like, we just kept trying to do what they wanted, they kept changing what they wanted every week, so we kept doing that. Yeah, that's what gives consultants a bad name is like when they allow themselves to be bossed around by people who they know are not. It's like handing a gun to a kid and being like, oh, I told him, I told him not to be shooting that thing at the park. But, <laughs> you know, imagine, you know, that was probably a terrible, <laughs> that was very dark and depressing. Sorry about that up. But, uh, but it's the same thing. I mean, you're handing them a, a software project 
is to me it's sort of like analogous to a surgery so it's it's usually a very expensive thing and if it goes horribly wrong you could lose the patient you know like spending of hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, a million dollars on something that just doesn't move any needle because no one decided what needle they wanted to move at the beginning. It's just, it drives me crazy. And here's the thing. If developers or consultants didn't bill by the hour, they would never do that. They would completely change the way they interact with the customer because there's no safety net. And if this thing dribbles on for 10 years and you're not making an extra, you know, you're not making another dime, you know, you're the patient that might get lost. So the beauty of fixed bid, whether it's value-based or not, is that it puts you in the same boat with the client and it makes it really easy to have those, or makes it much easier to have those hard conversations uh, because you're not benefiting financially from them just mushing things around and reversing their previous decisions and going back and forth. You're all in it together. So you can just be like, guys, seriously, you know, you look around the room, we're wasting 10 people, 10 valuable people's hour. We just wasted 10 hours of valuable time talking about what shade of blue the background should be. It doesn't matter. We can come back later, the end of the project. And if you want to, you know, it's a website, we can just change the CSS later. But if we just debate this endlessly throughout the course of the project, it's just going to go on forever and you're never going to launch. And you're never going to get in the benefits of all this money that you paid me. So let's get some ROI for you guys. It might not be direct bottom line, but you know, whatever the goal was that they want to achieve, let's get that value to you. And then we can do a week at the end where we just go through and we say, okay, give me all the twiddly little color changes that you want to make. And we'll just do them all at once. And it won't be that big a deal. And no one ever does. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> if you could just pull them out of that moment. It almost never happens that they come back with like, okay, you know, here's a laundry list of stuff that you told that, that you basically wouldn't let us do pre-launch. It doesn't really happen. Everybody's like, wow, our goals are met. Who cares what color blue it was? You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. Right. It ends up not just not being a really important thing or as important as they thought. It's contextualized. It's like, we need, we feel like this is important. We feel like we need to be expressing opinions about it. The only thing we understand is the visible aspect of it. And maybe some of the some of the workflows like a login flow or something like that. I mean, we get that because we use websites and we know what we like and what we don't like. But it, it's completely out of context, and it can end up being you know they feel like I need to participate here. I need to feel like I have some control over this. Uh, again, here's another another um, hourly billing problem. If you are getting close to exceeding the estimate, they want to take back more and more control because they're feeling the risk that you have put on them by not giving them a price. You have put a huge risk on them, a financial risk. And as they start to feel that risk get higher and higher and higher, and they start to feel like, oh my God, we've spent $90,000 and we literally have nothing to show for it. And the whole estimate was 100000 and they know they're not going to make it under budget. Then they start to micromanage like crazy to get back a sense of control, which is the worst thing they could do. But it's still, it's the, you know, it's like the, the trying to save a drowning man type of thing where they drown the lifeguard. So hourly billing is nuts, man. It's horrible. <laughs> I've heard of a book by, by that title. <laughs> you see how I worked that in? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Philip, yeah, I'm sorry that I've sort of drowned you out the, for much of this episode. Do you have any suggestions, thoughts on this uh, topic? 
I wrote down a few questions and I didn't want to interject with them because they kind of take us not away, but into an adjacent territory. So I wanted to make sure that you guys went deep on that because that was awesome. Jonathan, do you see DevShops using like a hybrid approach where maybe they do this exploration process, whether it's paid or not, I guess it's not really relevant. And then they decide, okay, we're going to take this client hourly because whatever reason versus, uh, you know, value-based. Like, can you combine those approaches? Maybe not on the same project, but just as a part of your strategy to make a lot of sales or whatever. Right. Yeah. So it's a really good question. And I do think that people are, lots of people, especially if they have employees, so you've got a firm and maybe you've got, you know, five, 10 developers and they have, you have payroll to meet and there are potentially big cash flow issues with that. It's really hard. I am like so obviously I'm super against hourly billing, but I understand that most people, especially in a situation like that, can't just go cold turkey off of hourly because it's really good for cash flow and for revenue. It's bad for profits, which is the amount of money left over after you subtract your costs from your revenue. But it's good for cash flow and it's good for revenue, or it can be. So what I would say is if you if you imagine that there are four potential stages to a software project, there's sort of the diagnostic phase where you figure out what needs to be done and what the goals are, like why are we all here? And then there's the prescriptive phase where you go through, okay, here's I'm going to put together an architecture, a plan, a roadmap. Here are all the things that I think that you should do. And then there's the application of that roadmap. And this is where I stop. I don't get into application of uh, and when I you know I mean like not application like apps but applying the prescription so like okay here's what you need to do now I'm going to do it for you so basically that would amount to doing the initial build of a new system or a website and then there's this sort of reapplication of that which is essentially maps the maintenance phase of a project so that's sort of you know maybe you've got a service contract or a maintenance contract or maybe you provide ongoing training or onboarding for new employees using the new system or some sort of like kind of like ongoing open-ended service that you do at the end there. And as you start on the left-hand side and work your way down to the right-hand side, all the, the profits go down, but the revenue goes up. And, and my angriness level <laughs> goes down against hourly billing as you get to the reapplication phase. So I think it's because what happens is the value is going down for the customer as well. The value in a maintenance contract is very low. And their perceived value in a maintenance contract is very low. So they're not, it's a, it's a terrible thing to value price on maintenance contract because nobody wants to talk about, like nobody wants to think about it like that. It should just work. We paid for it. It should just work. And the fact that you have to, whatever, you know, if we use a car analogy, the fact that you have to get it tuned up now and again, it's just, you can't value price it. It's a main, it's maintenance. It's just garbage work. But that can be a lucrative or at least a nice cushion or baseline uh, against cash flow issues in your firm. So I, this is why I don't have employees because I don't want to be put in the situation to kind of have to take on the work in the application and reapplication phases. I just want to do the really high value stuff at the beginning and then I'm just done. And I think once people start value billing, it's highly likely that their firm will start to reorganize around this principle. They'll move up the value chain. So they'll go closer and closer to the front end. Uh, and once they get themselves in a cash flow position where they feel really confident that they can do just those pieces, those really high profit pieces, then probably they'll stop, you know, the first thing they'll stop offering is maintenance contracts because they're just 
you know, they're a pain. They're, they're not worth that much profitability wise. So very long answer to your question, but I think a mix of approaches, especially for somebody trying to make this transition is really important so that you don't put yourself out of business as you're getting used to doing value-based fees. And the place to start is the really, really high profit stuff in the diagnostic and prescriptive phases where you value price that stuff. Because if you're wrong, you know, they're, they're relatively short engagements and you're, and the value is really high. So you can be, you can price yourself really low and not get killed. Does that answer what you're going for? I think so. I mean, it, of course it brings up other questions. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of people, this is just terminology. A lot of people use the word retainer to talk about a maintenance contract. Yeah. That's and, a misapplication of the term in my opinion. What, <laughs> right. Or, or it, you know, confuses the other kind of retainer, which is that, um, but I mean, maybe you could talk about that, like that idea of getting paid a fee every month to gain access to you seems super, superficially similar to a maintenance contract. How is it different? Uh, it's different in the nature of the interaction. So the, the, if you, if you just look at it from a, a tactical level or like a implementation level, if you're getting Imagine you have a maintenance maintenance contract. The CEO is not calling you about the maintenance contract. Like, oh, the site's down. I mean, I guess for a small organization, maybe it would be. But if you were, you know, if you're working with an organization like Ruben described, where, you know, they've got, I think he said 60 employees worldwide, the CEO is going to be involved, or the, the president or whoever's running the organization is going to be involved at the beginning, setting the goals, making high level strategic decisions. And those kinds of decisions don't get made every day. But they're really important because everything downstream from them will be affected. On the flip side, if there's a typo on the login screen, the CEO is not going to call you about that. Probably customer service or like someone, you know, maybe probably not even your original project contact is high enough up in the organization to be bothered with that kind of thing. They might just grant you access to the issue tracker and not even talk to you. So you, at this point, you're basically as far downstream as you can go as a developer. It's the worst kind of, from profit standpoint, it's probably the worst thing you can do as a developer is to be on a long-term maintenance contract, with the exception that I said before, that maybe you're cool with that because it gives you a dependable monthly cash flow, but that can be addressed many other ways. So a retainer, to me, it's, that is not a retainer. It's a maintenance contract. It's a support contract. There's, those are the words for that thing. A retainer is when you are on speed dial for the CEO when the CEO has a question about a strategic decision or an objective. They're trying to set a new objective. You finished this last project. You were really smart. You were a great trusted partner for us. I'm on the board of another company who has a similar thing, and we really want to get your brain into the mix. That's high value. That's a retainer where you're perceived as an expert at your thing, whatever you're the go-to person for, you're perceived as an expert and you are, are, you know, and people want access to that expertise. And so you say, you know, for whatever, 10,000 bucks a month, uh, you can contact me 24 seven and I'll get back to you within 90 minutes during business hours and either get you an answer to your question or let you know that I'm researching the answer and I will get it to you when I get it to you. I mean, you, someone who's changing typos on a website is not an expert at anything. <laughs> Or they're not getting paid to be, I should say. Oh, mic drop. Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm interested in that prescriptive phase, and I, you know, I feel like I'm purposely trying to throw you a curveball and and say, well, what about the startup situation where you're, mm, yep. you know, kind of building maybe a new business model that's supported by an app, yep. and that prescriptive work is necessarily has a lot of uncertainty and mixed mm -hmm. into it. Does that change anything in terms of being able to apply value pricing? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Startups are a terrible fit for value pricing. So because they don't, because their goal is they have no revenue stream, typically, you know, the, the typical startup, VC backed or someone who's trying to get VC money. It's just, it's like value pricing for doing value pricing for a gambler. It doesn't make any sense. It's not even a business in my opinion. It's not a business yet. It's a startup. So value pricing is a, you know, not all, you can't value price everything. I mean, everything's bought on value, but the process of going through and creating a value-based proposal cannot be done for every kind of project. Some of them are a bad fit or there's no value there. There's not, there's no perceived value for the client. It's just like plumbing they need done or they have no, you know, that's the startup has no idea. This app could make them a billion dollars or it could make them nothing and they'll go out of business. So startups, I've written about this, in fact, like VC-backed startups are a bad fit for value pricing when they're still in that very uncertain phase. If you get to a place where somebody has maybe their third round of funding, they've got a revenue stream, you know, they can see, you know, if they could decrease their churn, it would drastically increase their profitability. Then you can start to get there. But it's a going concern at that point. And it's much easier for people uh, you're playing on easy mode if you approach businesses that have a cash flow. I mean, like, is it even a business if it doesn't have cash flow? You know, so yeah, I mean, not everybody's a good fit. And I've definitely said in the past that VCs are a bad fit for value pricing. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Well, I think that those were my little uh, annoying questions, <laughs> which turned into be pretty interesting answers. No, they were great. Wow. This is amazing. Um, yeah. So do you know what you're going to, yeah, I mean, does that help though? I mean, oh, is that too. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I, I, first of all, like the meeting that I have tomorrow, this roadmap session, we're definitely going to start off with trying to figure out what are they doing? What's wrong with the current website? I, I mean, I sort of had a gut feeling that it would be better to stick with the current one. I'm pretty sure that someone convinced them, either internally or externally, you've got to change it. And they're set on doing that. In which case, yeah, then we've got to focus on the high level goals. And that will really help to focus everything, not only the goals, but the discussion. And it will allow us then to discuss like, okay, if those are the goals, then which of the current functionality do we actually want? And it allows to whittle it down. Because right now, like, again, the number of features they want is so huge, I don't think we could really list it out. But if we can talk about goals, then talk about, okay, what are the sort of steps to get to those goals? That's all of a sudden going to be reasonable. I can write up a road mapping document based on that. And mm-hmm. then we can start to talk about pricing, scheduling, and so forth. Right. Um, and I can also feel them out for how much they're going to want to be involved. And my guess is that after having been burned so badly, they're going to want to be very involved. And so trying to sort of set expectations correctly for what will and will not be okay there is going to be a bit of a balancing act, but not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, definitely, definitely sounds good. Very, very useful as well as interesting. Wow. So uh, let's, uh, Jonathan, uh, you got any picks for us this week? Yes. I was cribbing heavily from a post by Blair Enns when I was talking about the diagnostic prescriptive application and reapplication. That's a concept that I first saw articulated by Blair and I love it. My first pick would be to send people to uh, winwithoutpitching.com and check out Blair's stuff. He's got a bunch of articles that are just amazing, just chock full of gold. I cannot think of a time I've ever disagreed with anything you wrote. He's more focused on designers and agencies. So if, you know, folks, if you're listening to this uh, and you do a lot of design work or you're running an advertising agency, that's his background and he will be speaking your language. So I would send, I would send you there. My other pick, I guess, would be Deadpool, which I saw recently and was probably the funniest. I have not laughed that hard at a movie 
in like years. Deadpool had some scenes that were so funny. It's like a, a superhero action movie, but he's this <laughs> snarky sort of pseudo Spider-Man guy. But wow, what a great movie. Highly recommend Deadpool. It's it's in the theaters now or it's on video? Uh, no, no, it's on I saw it on Amazon, so or Netflix probably. Really good movie. Excellent. Philip, That's it. what you got for us this week? Uh, you know, I think my pop culture pick is going to be this uh, Netflix show, Stranger Things, that uh, seems to be a pretty recent thing. I don't have my finger on the pulse of pop culture, but this was awesome. Uh, if you, I'll just say if you liked Twin Peaks, you'll like Stranger Things. And then uh, software pick, I... Uh, for, <laughs> I'll give a little context. I, I got a bee in my bonnet about uh, trying to do analytics on my marketing funnel in a more sort of disciplined way. And there's a ton of tools out there. You know, there's Google Analytics. There's uh, Heap is one that I've used and, and still kind of like. Uh, there's Mixpanel if you are some kind of analytics uh, badass. I'm none of those things. So I wanted to try something different. Came across a piece of software called Tend, T-E-N-D. And what's unique about Tend is that it, uh, you know, you put a tracking snippet on your website and it's really focused on, um, I guess what you would call user or lead acquisition. So it's looking for people filling out a form such as they would fill out to opt into an email list or become a lead of some sort. And then it's further, uh, focused on how did you acquire that lead? You know, was it through some ad spend or a particular ad campaign or did they come from some email uh, marketing campaign that you did or how, how did they end up being a lead? And, and it's more than just like it's looking at UTM referrer code. So it's more than just what page they signed up on. It's trying to give you kind of a richer understanding of, uh, of why somebody uh, became a lead, which for me was perfect because, you know, I do a lot of email marketing. So that's really the mouth of my funnel is, is uh, people joining my email list. And I'm interested in what activities drive that. Really nice piece of software. Still kind of early days in terms of its development. So, you know, like any early SaaS, it's not perfect, but it's quite good. Uh, so uh, I'm going to recommend 10. Um, I, I guess also for context, say that I ultimately stopped using it because once I had all that awesome data, I realized that I'm not really going to do anything differently because of it. I just, I don't have the bandwidth to, and, <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm, going to reallocate $5,000 of Facebook ad spend from this to that because uh, I don't spend anything on Facebook ads. I, I do things that are um, very effective, but also cheap and easy, like you know podcast guesting and so forth. So it wasn't really uh, the perfect fit for me. It was kind of analytics overkill, but still, I, I feel like I can recommend it because it's a really good piece of software. So those are my picks for this week. Excellent. So I've got two picks. One is I recently, after many years of not reading it, I started getting The Economist magazine, and it is just so much fun. I mean, besides the snarky captions for all their photos and pictures, but I just, I mean, even when I don't agree with it, I just find the writing to be so uh, interesting and uh, covered in ways that other newspapers and magazines don't so much. So I definitely recommend uh, taking a look at The Economist. The other thing is a book that I started reading. Uh, which I've thought about reading for a while, but it's political season, so it's uh, fun to read such stuff. It's called The Victory Lab by Sasha Eisenberg. And it's all about how basically data science is taking over elections and how the people with the best models of the public are the ones who will actually win. 
and some of us are hoping that that will actually be the case. In any event, so so it's a fascinating sort of uh, story of how politics and uh, technology are converging in back rooms with people doing analytics that we usually associate with, I don't know, PayPal or you know other financial institutions or Amazon, but not necessarily winning elections. So uh, definitely worth taking a look at for those of you who are political junkies and nerds which is, I think, at least some proportion of you out there. Anyway, that does it for this episode. Thanks so much to uh, Philip and Jonathan, and we will see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>